1 John chapter 2, verses 1 through 2, give ear to the word of God. John writes, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, some of you weren't here when we first started this book and weren't here a couple weeks ago when we looked at verses 5 through 10 of the first chapter. Well, back back in those verses, what John did was, in some ways, uh, he taught us about the right Christian view, the biblical view of sin. And the reason that he had to do that was there were false teachers in the churches he was dealing with here. And those false teachers in his day, much like the ones in our own day as well, They had been leading the church astray in many ways, and one of the things that they led the church astray about was was what we might think of as a denial of sin and a denial of sin's effects in our lives. They taught, these false teachers did, as many do today, they taught that it didn't matter how you lived and that one could still have fellowship with God even while walking in darkness. In other words, they taught you could sin all you want, you know, live a life of unrepentant sin and still have fellowship with God. And the scripture nowhere teaches that. In fact, there's so many places you could think of Hebrews 12, 14, among others, that what does it say there? Without holiness, no man will see God. It's as blunt and as plain as that. And John says much the same thing. And in the verses we looked at the last couple times, John taught us in, in the previous chapter that the right approach for the Christian when it comes to our sin is not to deny it, uh, either by saying, as he says there in verses 8 and 10, The false teacher said that we have no sin. We don't deny as Christians that we have sinned, and we don't deny that we have sinned. But the right approach is to acknowledge it, to repent of it. And John says in verse 9, to confess our sins to God in Jesus Christ, because what will God do? What does he say God will do when you confess your sins? He says he is faithful and just to what? To forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So that's, that's the right approach for the Christian when we sin. So now we come to our text in the verses in here in chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. And John starts off by saying, My little children, I'm writing these, writing these things to you. Why? So that you may not sin. So he's still dealing with the same subject in many ways. And one of those things that sometimes needs to be repeated is, you know, the chapter divisions in your Bibles, they're good and they're helpful, but don't don't let it get you kind of twisted around where you think that John wrote chapters and this part, chapter 2, isn't related to chapter 1. He's still dealing with the same subject in, in many ways. And so what's he saying? John is saying that um, he's writing this book in, in many ways what he just wrote in chapter 1 in order that we might not sin. Now, why does John have to say that? Why, why do you think John has to bring such a thing up as that? I think what he's doing is he's wanting to make sure that his readers, the church and the church, don't get the wrong idea, that we don't get the wrong idea about what he is saying in the previous verses. For some people might hear, and still do today very often, the promise of forgiveness of sins through Jesus Christ, the cleansing from all unrighteousness. And suppose that that means that we as believers really don't need to take our sins very seriously at all. You get the idea sometimes that we we kind of slip into that kind of thinking sometimes in our worst moments. We think, well, we have this promise in the Bible that God forgives our sin when we confess it. So 
it doesn't really matter how carefully I, I am out as far as how I live. I can kind of live, you know, carelessly. And, oh, you know, if I slip into sin, whoopee-doo, no big deal. Just confess it. God wipes the slate clean and you get up and, and move on. Well, that's not what John is saying at all. As free as that forgiveness is, we aren't to take our sins lightly. James Boyce puts it this way when he writes, Nothing that John has written thus, in other words, chapter 1, can be taken as an endorsement of sin. But it is possible that some might misunderstand his statements and thereby reach that conclusion. In other words, to think, well, it's no big deal if I sin. Has he not argued that all men sin in chapter 1? Well, they might argue, if sin is inevitable, why struggle against it? You will sin no matter what you do, so resign yourself to the facts. That's not what John was getting at, is it? John wasn't saying, well, you're going to sin anyway, so why bother fighting it? Why bother working at repentance? Or again, he says, has John not said that there is forgiveness for sin through what Jesus has done and indeed continues to do? All right, they might add, why worry about committing sin? If God forgives it, the outcome is assured. As a matter of fact, why not sin more? For God can forgive more and get greater glory in such circumstances. It's the same argument that Paul anticipates and, and argues against in Romans chapter 6, verse 1, isn't it? You know, Paul spends these first five chapters in Romans talking about the, free, the grace of God, the power of grace, how where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. Right, God's grace is greater than our sin, and our sin's pretty bad. Right, that, That's the, the power of the gospel and the grace of God. And so Paul says, what shall we say then? In other words, after all he said about the gospel and the free grace of God, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? That, that is the wrong way to take the grace of God, but some people twist the grace of God that way. Many, many times people twist the grace of the gospel of Christ into a license to sin. And that is not what the Bible teaches. And so John is quick to tell us that the point of what he's been saying in the previous chapter and throughout the entire letter in many ways is that it's meant to turn us away from sin. If you read 1 John and you come away with it thinking, oh, I can just kind of live how I want and, and not care about my sin, we're not reading the book of 1 John correctly. He says he wants us, he writes, so that we may not sin. As we'll see for the believer, the good news of the gospel of Christ and the promise of the free forgiveness of our sins when we confess them to God should actually motivate us more to avoid sin and flee away from it, not to indulge in it. That's, that's really the way it should be. You know, in our, in our call to worship, Psalm 130, verse 4, it says, and I think it's printed on the front of your bulletin as well, it says, with you there is forgiveness, and it might sound weird to our ears, but he says, with you there is forgiveness that you might be feared. In other words, that God's, God's holiness might be esteemed even higher. That we might fear God, not in a, in a trembling you know, way of someone who's terrified of God, but in a way of a, of a child to its father. A reverent fear, a reverent godly fear that draws us closer to him. We should avoid the forgiveness of God uh, of our sins should motivate us to... to to flee from sin, not to indulge in it. Now, if we read 1 John in particular, if we read the scriptures, the Bible in general, and come away from it more inclined to indulge in sin than to repent of it, there's something terribly wrong. 
If any teaching in the church tends toward a laxness when it, a laxness when it comes to sin and toward making us more comfortable in sin, something's wrong. The gospel of Jesus Christ, rightly believed and understood, will tend to lead us away from sin and not toward it. It will teach us to make it our sincere goal, as John puts it here, to not sin. And as he says in verse 3, what's the opposite of that? To keep his commandments. Two sides of the same coin, right? So we're going to focus our attention, Lord willing, on three things this morning from our text. Uh, first, the admonition or, or exhortation not to sin. Secondly, the advocate for us as believers when we sin. And third, the atonement or, or propitiation for our sin. So I put it in three A's so you can remember it easier. The admonition, the advocate, and the atonement for our sin. So the first thing that we see here and that we should take some time to look at is the admonition uh, to us as believers not to sin. You know, I think it would be too easy to kind of gloss over what John says in the opening of verse 1, but we should really take note of it that John takes the time to say such a thing, and we should take it to heart. Because what does John tell us in verse 1? He says, here's the point. This is the point of what I'm writing here in, in chapter 1 and throughout the whole letter in some ways, is that we not sin. And so to miss that point is to miss the very point of the letter at all. Verse 1 there again, he says, My little children, I'm writing these things, the things in this letter, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Now note the fatherly tone in his admonishment or exhortation. This isn't him yelling at, at the people in the church and kind of harping on them and you know climbing all over their back. He's talking as a father does to his children. Or as a father should do to his children, right? He writes as their father in the faith. Maybe some of these people in these churches heard the gospel for the first time from the Apostle John himself. He was writing to them as their father in the faith, someone who cared deeply for their well-being as believers and who wanted the best for them. That's the way it should be in the ministry at all times today, too. He uses the same fatherly tone Later on in 3 John, the, the two, two books from now, 3 John verses 3 to 4 where he says this, For I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, or, or King James puts it, the truth that is in you, uh, as indeed you are walking in the truth. Here he says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. What was the Apostle John's greatest joy when it came to other believers? that they were walking in the truth and following Christ in their fellowship with God. That has to be the aim and the joy of those who would serve in the gospel ministry today, no less than in John's day. Pastors and elders must make it our aim not just to teach the members of our churches the truth, although that certainly is a, the place to start, but we also have to teach our people to walk in the truth, in other words, to not sin and to repent of it. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ here this morning uh, and know the blessing, the great blessing of salvation from your sin through, through faith alone, by grace alone, uh, and in Christ alone, do, do you make it your aim and purpose in life? Do you make it your lifelong pursuit as long as you are in this life to avoid sin and to walk in a way that's well-pleasing to your heavenly Father? That should be our goal, to please God in all things for his grace to us in Jesus Christ. Do you approach your study of the Bible when you spend time reading God's word, studying it on your own, going to Bible studies, 
coming to church, listening to sermons? Do you approach your study of God's word with that in mind, saying such things to yourself, asking yourselves these questions as you look at the word? Are you saying to yourself, how is God calling me to actually live differently in light of what I'm hearing? Or what does James say? I mentioned it in the prayer earlier. Uh, Let us be doers of the word and not hearers only. What? Deceiving ourselves. Hearing the word is a good, a good place to start. Uh, many don't even get that far, but it's not just the hearing, it's the doing in many ways of it. Do you ask yourself how God might be calling you to live differently in light of what you're hearing? Are there particular sins that he is drawing your attention to? You know, it's funny the way that God's word works. Now, as a pastor, as a preacher, I have to make some effort uh, to apply the word of God in the sermon, right? We don't just preach the truth of it and kind of leave the application uh, very vague, but it's, it's very strange, but it's very encouraging that very often what God does by his spirit is he'll take the same word of God and in many ways apply it in different circumstances in your life. Sometimes you'll be sitting there and, and I, you know, you've heard this kind of thing before. Somebody will say, wow, how did the pastor know that I'm dealing with such and such? Well, newsflash, the pastor doesn't know most of the time, but God does. And God uses his word in various ways uh, for very different people in very different circumstances uh, to change our lives. Are, are there, again, are there sins that God is calling your attention to and drawing you to your attention that you might confess them and repent of them and seek to walk in obedience to his will? You know, this is why John says, among other things, in the verses right after our text, verses 3 to 6, he says this, And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, that is, I know God, right? Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him, but whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him, that's abides in Christ, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he, that is Christ, walked. Now, if you have to keep these things in context. John already said in chapter 1, we can't say that we have no sin. He can't say that we haven't sinned. So John is not saying the way to know you're a Christian is to live a perfect life. He's already undone that. He's already said you're going to sin. You have sinned. You have sin in you as a believer. Believers all struggle with sin, right? But he's saying despite that being the case, that doesn't mean that we're not walking with Christ, that we aren't obeying God's commandments. What, what is the general direction of your life if you profess to believe in Christ? Is the general direction of your life one of disobedience and rebellion? That's what John's talking about here. And if that's the case, what would John say? You're not a believer yet. If you're a believer, you're not going to live a sinless life, but your life is not going to be marked by a constant pattern of rebelliousness and sin. It's going to be marked however imperfectly, by keeping God's commandments and sincerely trying to do so. What does John say in 1 John 5, verse 3? He says the same thing in so many different ways. He says this, for this is the love of God. And what is it? What does it mean to love God? For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. And then he adds, and his commandments are not burdensome. God's commands aren't negative. They're not a burden strapped to your back to make your life miserable. They're not there to make your life harder or to rob you of joy. In fact, what does John say earlier in the book, in the letter? I write these things so that your joy may be 
full. Disobedience and rebellion against God's commands does not bring joy. It does not bring happiness. It brings misery in the long run. God's commands are for our good, and they are not meant to be a burden, especially for a believer. Psalm 119, uh, the great, the longest chapter in the Bible, it's about God's word in many ways. Twice in that psalm, King David says, Oh, how I love your law. It wasn't a burden to his back, and it isn't meant to be a burden to yours either. That's not legalism. If we love God because God loved us first and sent his son for our salvation, we demonstrate that love to God sincerely, even though imperfectly, by obeying his commandments. It's, there's no other way to put it. And, you know, it's not that different in some ways uh, to our own families, is it? As a parent. Now, we can, see, we can sometimes seem rather harsh at times trying to discipline our kids. But one of the things that we look for in our, in our children is that they might obey us. If, if they love us, if they, if they respect us, we expect them to do what we tell them to do. That's not legalism. That's, that's caring for them. We want their lives to go well. Now, as believers, you and I must never be self-righteous. We must never be pharisaical, but we must make it our aim to walk in the truth and to live in a way that is fitting for those who, who profess to believe in the name of Jesus Christ. The Bible is, if you think about it, the Bible is full of commands. The Bible is full of exhortations and admonitions. It's full of warnings it's full of examples of God graciously blessing the imperfect obedience of his people. And it's full of examples of God chastising them for their sins. All those things are there for our instruction. All those things are there for our benefit. And we must learn to take those things to heart and to make it our sincere aim in life not to sin and to learn to walk in newness of life in the power of Christ's resurrection by the work of his Holy Spirit within us. It's why God... Uh, sent Jesus to save us from not just from the penalty of our sins, but from our sins. And if we understand the grace of God the way we should, the last thing we should want is to continue on in them. Well, the second thing we find in our text this morning is John's encouragement to us in our struggle against sin, and that he points us, as always, to Jesus Christ, reminding us that he is our advocate when we do sin. In, in verse 1, John says, says this. I'll read the whole verse this time. Verse 1, John says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. And who is that advocate? Jesus Christ, the righteous. John already told us we're not going to reach sinless perfection in this life. And despite our best efforts, at times we will still sin. We all know that if we're honest with ourselves. But when you do sin, what are you to do? Run away from God further? Hide kind of like Adam and Eve did in the garden with your, with your fig leaves, so to speak? Kind of avoid God, avoid prayer, avoid Bible reading, avoid church when you sin? Is that the right approach? No, we confess our sins, he says in 1 John 1, 9. And why do we do that? Why do we do that with the confidence that God will, forgive, will, will be faithful and just to forgive us our sins? One of the reasons is we have an advocate before the Father. And who is that advocate? The Lord Jesus Christ, the righteous one. You couldn't have a better advocate than that to say the least. What are you to do when you sin? One of the first things John does is basically tells us, to look to Jesus Christ and be reminded of his ongoing ministry on our behalf at the right hand of God the Father. 
You know, sometimes as a pastor, um, people, I think, sometimes think, you ever see, nobody's old enough, half you guys aren't old enough. Remember the old Batman TV show with Adam West, kind of funny and campy, and, but he had the red phone, and Commissioner Gordon could just, like, speed dial Batman. He had a, in other words, he had a special line. Now, why didn't they trace that to figure out where the phone went? And, no, it's at Wayne Manor. That's odd. You know, but, but he had this special phone. Whenever he needed something, bang. Sometimes people act like, because I'm a pastor, I have some kind of special in with God. And so if I pray for them, it's different than if you pray for them. Well, that's not the case, right? Um, we, we all have the same access to God through Jesus Christ. But, but you have an advocate that's not me or not any great pastor you might think of, whoever that might be. It's not even Moses or John or Peter or someone like that. It's not the saints like the Roman Catholic Church might teach. It's Jesus Christ is your advocate. And on what basis does he advocate for you before the Father? All his perfections, but his blood. The fact that he died, which we'll look at later on in our text as well, uh, to save us from our sin. Now, the Greek word there for advocate is one that is also used to, to describe the work of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. It can be translated simply as helper. Uh, it was often used to refer to someone who acted as a defense attorney or a representative of someone else. And I think that's the idea or all the above that John has in mind here when he uses it of Jesus. Jesus not only died for our sins, but he is also even right now present before God the Father as our advocate when we do sin. Hebrews 7.25, a great verse I recommend to your memorization and, and contemplation uh, Hebrews 7.25 says much the same thing. It says this, consequently, talking about the resurrection and the ascension, consequently, he, that's Jesus, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Why? Since he always lives to make intercession for them. Same thing as what John is talking about in our text. Jesus is at the right hand of God, even now interceding for us as his people. That is why nothing can separate you from the love of God in Jesus Christ. Now when it says he's able to save to the uttermost, what does that mean? It has the idea of completeness or perfection. He saves you completely. He, he's no halfway savior. He doesn't meet you halfway or start you off by his grace only to leave you to try to hang on by the skin of your teeth or by your fingernails. The Apostle Paul says this much in Philippians 1.6. He says, And I am sure of this, or convinced of this, that he who began a good work in you, that's God, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. In other words, if you're a believer in Christ right now, if you are a saved person, who did that? God did. Who started that? People sometimes think we start that. Well, I turned to Jesus on my own, and then God did this and God did that. No. Even your faith is the gift of God, Ephesians 2, 8 to 9, right? And even this is not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works that no man can boast. Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ, started the, the business of your salvation, even in you believing. And what does Paul say? He who began that good work in you will bring it to completion until the day of Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ finishes what he starts. He is both, as Hebrews says, the author and the finisher of our faith. That is why Jesus is able to save to the uttermost 
those who draw near to God through him. And, and why is it again? Not just because he died for us, as, as true as that is, but because now he lives for us at the right hand of God, even making intercession for us. You could say that in his high priestly work, interceding for us as our advocate, the Lord Jesus Christ appears on our behalf and in our place at the right hand of God, in a sense, continually presenting his finished work on the cross for our salvation before his father. By his cross, he purchased our salvation and by his intercession at the right hand of God, he applies that salvation to his people. It's one of those things, and I, I think I say it very often on, on Ascension Sunday, uh, we, we think much on the cross and resurrection, and we should. Paul says we preach Christ crucified. But as believers, we should think just as highly of Christ's exaltation to the right hand of God the Father, because that is the, that is the reason why our salvation in Christ is so secure. He makes sure that we are kept by the power of faith. He intercedes for us at the right hand of God. The third thing we see in our text is not just the admonition, not just the advocate of Christ for, for us as his, his people. The third thing we see in our text is that he is also, Christ is the atonement or propitiation for our sins. Now the word propitiation, besides being hard to pronounce, uh, it's not found very often in Scripture. In fact, the noun form of it is only found twice in the New Testament. Both are in First John, including our text in chapter 4, verse 10. What does the word propitiation mean? It's, you know, I think of certain words that I, I lament that they've fallen out of use. One of the ones I try to use a lot, and I hope to kind of bring back, at least in our use, is the word providence. Maybe it's all words that start with the letter P. I don't know. Providence, people used to talk about it all the time, how God even now is actively governing and, and sustaining all things for his glory and by his power. Uh, what propitiation is like that it's a word that has fallen out of use for many reasons. Not all of them are good reasons. Um, some theologians, some uh, liberal theologians and others, they think uh, that it's unworthy of being used of God because they think it's, they see how it's used in pagan religion and they say, well, we don't want to you know, make it sound like God is some angry God, uh, that kind of a thing. Um, well, we don't, we don't take a biblical word and throw it out because somebody else uses the same word in an improper way. And so it does us uh, much good to use the words the Bible uses and to work to understand them uh, correctly. We shouldn't be ashamed to use it, and we should learn what it means and work to retain it in the vocabulary of our faith. There are different words for the sacrifice Christ has made for our salvation from sin, and they all have a good use, and they all have good reason. Uh, one similar word is expiation, and very often people will use that word instead of propitiation for various reasons. But expiation means essentially the removal of our sins. And that certainly is one of the things that Christ did on the cross. It's the removal of sin by a substitute, by an atonement. Propitiation basically refers to the appeasing of the wrath of God through a substitutionary atonement or sacrifice. The appeasing of the wrath of God. God has a wrath for sin. In fact, the Bible in the book of John talks about those who, who don't believe in Christ. The wrath of God abides on them. The Bible talks about the wrath of God many times and in many ways, and we shouldn't be embarrassed to talk about whatever the Bible talks about. Propitiation means kind of removing the wrath of God from us by taking it upon himself. He has appeased the wrath of God and satisfied it 
in full. He has satisfied God's holiness by his cross. And so that's what propitiation means. It's the appeasing of God's wrath by a substitute, by Jesus Christ in our place. And I think it's important that John, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, used this particular word here in our text. He probably, he could have used, you know, all things considered, he could have probably used a different word if he wanted to, if the Holy Spirit would have him to do that. But he used this particular word in this particular verse, and I think there, there are reasons for it. I think this particular word is part of his argument for the encouragement of believers when we sin. And why do I say that? What does the word mean? To appease God's wrath when you sin, what are you conscious of? What, do you, what comes to your mind? What sometimes keeps you, as a believer even, from coming to God quickly in confession and repentance? You, you just think, oh, I'm going to get it this time. You know, God, God still has a little bit of wrath in his hip pocket uh, waiting for me. Couldn't possibly have poured it all out. We don't say these words out loud. We don't think these thoughts, you know, articulate them that way. But that's kind of what we think, isn't it? We kind of are tempted to kind of go back to our old ways and run and hide. And he says, Jesus, the righteous, is our advocate and is also the propitiation for our sins. That God has, has poured out his wrath for your sin and mine, if you're a believer, in full on Christ on his cross. What did Jesus say on the cross? One of the so-called seven sayings from the cross. It is what? Finished. And, and some people say that can be translated paid in full. It's that idea. It's a different word, but it's the idea of propitiation being made by a sacrifice. Uh, it's what, what does propitiation mean other than the fact that the wrath of God for your sins and mine was fully appeased and satisfied in accordance with God's holiness, justice, and love? Is that not what you and I need to be reminded of when we sin? Is that not what you and I need to remember in order to encourage us to go boldly, as the Bible says, to the throne of grace to confess our sins and to seek forgiveness. There's no more wrath of God to be poured out on those who are in Christ by faith. That is the good news of the gospel. Because Jesus himself took the wrath of God in full upon himself, the wrath that was due unto you and me for our sins, our debt has been paid in full so that, as Paul says in Romans 3.26, God can now be just or righteous and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The salvation that God has worked in, through, in for us through his son is in such a way that he in no way has to undo or deny his own holiness. He is still just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. In fact, it's because Christ is the propitiation for our sins, it's only because of that that he can be our advocate before the Father. Because God's justice has been satisfied in full one writer puts it this way the important lesson is this that it is as the propitiation for our sins that jesus christ is our advocate with the father i'll say that again it is as the propitiation for our sins that jesus christ is our advocate with the father let us remember that when we sin let that fact encourage us to draw near to god confessing our sins to him and repenting of them earnestly, knowing that God is well pleased in Jesus Christ and even faithful and just, as he says in verse, one, verse 9 of chapter 1, faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. How is it that he can do that? Because Christ is the propitiation for our sins. 
You could say that Jesus, even in the presence of God now, not that God himself needs a reminder, but we need to be assured of it. It's a, it's a constant reminder before the face of God the Father that the price has been paid. That Jesus Christ, the righteous one, is at his right hand even now in our place representing us. And it's a strong word, isn't it? Advocating for us. For you, if you're a believer, the Lord Jesus Christ is your advocate. Not that God is unwilling. It isn't that, that, that God is somehow an unwilling God to receive us. But it's, it's, he's the one that sent Christ to do that at the beginning, isn't it? Isn't he? So it's, we shouldn't think it that way either. But Jesus is our advocate, and there's no greater advocate that we could have because he is the propitiation for our sins. Well, before we close, one brief note about the end of verse 2. Some have had uh, reason to uh, be, be uh, confused about this verse. There have been many, many debates over what it means and what it doesn't mean. At the end of verse 2, John says that Jesus is, quote, the propitiation for our sins, and then he says, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. In what way is Jesus the propitiation for the sins of the whole world? Now, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this. If you want to debate me after the service or something over coffee, fine. Um, John is not saying... John is not saying that Jesus literally died for the sins of every person in the world. And why do I say that? Is everyone saved? Is hell going to be empty? Well, then Jesus didn't die for the sins of the whole world, literally, in the sense that every single person has had their sins paid for. The Bible is very clear. The wrath of God will be poured out in full on the unrepentant and the unbelieving. And in fact, in many ways, that's one of the reasons we are to be more active in evangelism. Paul says, knowing the terror of God, we persuade men. Right? We, we preach the gospel to them because of it. There will be many people in hell, but there will not be in hell one single solitary sinner for whom Christ died. Christ did not die in vain. If, any, if there's anybody in hell for whom Christ died, then he died in vain. And Jesus is not a hypothetical savior, is he? Jesus did not die just to make salvation possible. He died, the Bible says, to save sinners. And that's exactly what he does. So what is John saying? What does he mean when he says Jesus is the propitiation for the sins of the whole world? I think what he's saying there is he's likely emphasizing the greatness of Christ's office and work as the Redeemer. He is the only savior of sinners both of Jews and Gentiles alike. There's only one Savior throughout the world. There's only one by whom we must be saved, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And I think sometimes in our day, being you know 2,000 some odd years down the road almost from when Jesus died and was raised again and, and ascended to God's right hand, I think we sometimes lose sight of the fact of, of how amazing a thing and how shocking a thing it would have been for someone to say back in the first century that Jesus is not just the savior of the Jewish people. He's not just their high priest and their king, nor is his kingdom restricted to the earthly nation and land of Israel. What does the Bible say? The ends of the earth are his. The ends of the earth. Where is the gospel now to go since Christ came and died and rose again? To the very ends of the earth. The Great Commission, what does Jesus tell us to do? Make disciples of what? 
all the nations. The world is his. All of creation is his. He is the Lord. All things, it says in the Bible, all things in all creation have been put under his feet. Jesus is the Lord of all. That is how far the good news of the gospel is to be proclaimed. And so you could even say in some ways that Christ's propitiation has worldwide or creation-wide effects as well. In fact, in Romans 8, verse 21, Paul says this. He says that one day when Christ returns, quote, the creation itself, we don't spend enough time on that passage in Romans 8. He says the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. There's going to be a new heavens and new earth. And why is that? Because Jesus died and rose again to undo what Satan did in the Garden of Eden. It's a new creation. Not only are you, if you're a believer, the Bible says, if any man is in Christ, he is a what? A new creation. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. It's not just you yourself as a person, as a believer, that's, that's a new creation. He's going to make a new creation also. And that started at the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. The creation itself will also be set free from its bondage to corruption. And so in closing, brothers and sisters, make it your aim not to sin. That's the point of what John is writing. Make it your aim not to sin. Press on toward the goal, as Paul says elsewhere. Press on toward the goal of the upward calling in Christ Jesus. In other words, do your best in this life to live as you're going to live in glory. You know, the, the, my favorite Puritan, Thomas Watson, has a little, he always says, he's one of the few Puritans that's very quotable and pithy and short sayings you can quote. He says the glorification, which what you're going to have in heaven, where you'll never sin again. He says sanctification, what God's doing in you now and changing you. Sanctification is glorification in seed form. In other words, it's a sure thing. One day, what you're having now, it may not feel like much to you in the present. God's work in your life and sanctifying you in, in Christ by the work of his spirit is the beginnings of that. And so what Paul says when he says press on toward the goal, he's like basically saying when he talks about the upward call in Christ Jesus, he's talking about glorification and sinless perfection. You won't achieve it in this life. There's the bad news. But it doesn't mean you shouldn't make it your goal. Sincerely, God is pleased to work these things in us that we might more and more be sanctified by his grace. We should make that our goal. And, and when, if, I almost think it's funny that John says, if someone sins, as if we won't. But I think the point is taken, right? We shouldn't just assume we're going we're gonna to sin no matter what. That's not the right way to think, to think of things. If and when you sin, what do you do? You look to Jesus Christ, your advocate before the Father, whoever lives to intercede on your behalf before your heavenly Father who loved you so much that he sent his only begotten Son to die and rise again in your place for your salvation. And if you think about it that way, if, if that won't keep you from sin, nothing will. If that won't keep you from sin and motivate you to turn from sin, nothing will. Look, it, It's not an accident, not a coincidence that we've only gone through, what, 12 verses in the book so far? And I haven't numbered them. I'll leave you to do that for your own homework. How many times in these 12 verses in the first chapter and first two of the, of the second chapter does John bring up Jesus? It's over and over again. He's... He is the solution to all these things. He is the, 
the cure, the salvation for our sin, all these things, and we are to look to him for encouragement uh, to, to go before the Father and confess our sins and receive his forgiveness. He is the encouragement to us in our sanctification that we might make it our aim not to sin. In closing, I'll just read Paul's words in Romans 8, verses 31 to 39, which in many ways I think is saying the same thing John is saying here in our text. Romans 8, 31 to 39. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Now, people might try, right? The devil might try, but who shall bring any charge? In other words, who shall bring any charge that's going to stick against God's elect? And what's the answer? It is God who justifies. Is there a higher court than God? No. Who is to condemn? Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised here it is again, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? He's, he's kind of going down, down the checklist, so to speak. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? In other words, can anything stop Christ from living to intercede for you at God's right hand? Can anything stop that from happening? Uh, it says, Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Then he says, no, in all these things we are what? We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure, or I am convinced or persuaded, that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. What's he saying? He's saying a lot of things. There's God, and then there's everything else that he created. And nothing that he created is more powerful than God. Nothing that he created, not even the devil himself, can undo what Christ has done. And he's even now doing at God's right hand, securing your salvation and mine if you're a believer in Christ. And so in light of that, what does John say? My little children, I write these things to you so that you may not sin. Because of that, we should seek to grow in our sanctification and not sinning against God's commands and obeying him in all things. Amen.